Well, let me tell you from the outset that this passage, this passage is about the kinds of people that Jesus saves, and the kinds of people that Jesus saves are those that, that Paul says are dead in the trespasses and sins, and the kinds of people that Jesus saves are the sons of disobedience. And the kinds of people that Jesus saves are the children of wrath. These are the kinds of people that Jesus saves. And what that means is, is that apart from Christ, every human being is spiritually dead. Apart from Christ, every human being is. Spiritually in bondage and enslaved, and apart from Christ, every human being is condemned. And what this passage says about our sinfulness and about our spiritual condition absolutely crushes every human boasting. And so, let me say this to you now: that this is not that kind of a passage. And this is not the kind of a sermon that you will call cheerful. If by cheerful you mean a lightweight and light-hearted pep talk, that's not this passage, and it's not that kind of a sermon. Because what it says about our sinfulness, what it says about our desperate spiritual condition, is absolutely crushing. It's absolutely humiliating. It's absolutely it cuts us down to pieces, but I will say this to you: that it is absolutely and very important, because you see, to misunderstand our spiritual condition apart from Christ is to misunderstand what Jesus has done to save us, and to be in error about Jesus's works. Is to be an error about who Jesus is, and it's to be an error about the Father who sent Him, and that is a problem, because if you remember what Jesus said in John chapter seventeen verse three, this is what Jesus said, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus tells us that eternal life means knowing the Father and the Son, and because nothing less than our eternal life depends and hangs on our knowledge of God and the Father, it is of utmost importance that we know God truly as He is. And the way to do that, it begins with understanding what we are. Without Jesus, so buckle up. This is not a cheerful sermon, but I will tell you, it is an important sermon. But I will also say that there is deep joy to be found in this passage. Now, the first thing I like to point out to you is the structure of Paul's teaching. Uh, Some technical remarks about this passage that we are reading that helps us to understand what's going on, 
Um, the reason we read verses 1 through 10, even though this morning we are only looking at verses 1, 2, and parts of verse 3, is because verses 1 through 10 is a unit. It's one single unit. And notice that verse 1, it begins like this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, to walk, it's an Old Testament idiom that means a way of life. Uh, it's, it's, can I put it this way? It's your lifestyle. Yeah. And notice that the image of walking appears once again in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this passage begins with our former manner of life, our lifestyle, the way we live apart from Christ. And it ends with our new way of life, new lifestyle in Christ. And what, what this is called, it's something called an inclusio. It's a literary device where a unit of thought begins and ends with the same concept or same idea or same expression. And that's how ancient writers, and this is something that we uh, see often in the Bible, that's how they indicate to you that this is a unit, a logical unit, a single thought that you should take in as a whole. It begins and ends with the same idea. And it also tells us that you have to understand every single part in light of the whole. Okay, so this is a unit that begins with the image of walking and ends with the image of walking, telling us that you can't understand these individual verses apart from the whole picture. And keeping the whole in mind as we look at its individual parts is particularly important here. Again, I apologize, but let me get some technical things out of the way so we can get on to what Paul is saying. Um, in, in, in an English sentence, we understand the grammatical role of each word largely by their position in the sentence. For example, Jesus loves sinners. That's a perfectly sound English sentence, isn't it? It begins with the subject, Jesus, and it's followed by a verb, loves, and then it is followed by the object, sinners. Jesus is the person doing or performing the action of loving. He is the subject performing the action indicated by the verb, and the sinners are the objects that are receiving the benefits of the action. So in English, we understand the role of uh, grammatical function of the roles of the words in a sentence largely by their position in the sentence, subject, verb, and object. And I think this is perhaps one of the reasons why poetry is so hard for us, isn't it? We're not used to reading something where words are jumbled up. They come to us in very strange orders. Uh, But the interesting about the Greek language is that In Greek, words actually look different uh, depending on the function that they are serving in the sentence. So the same word, depending on whether it is being used as a subject or object, will look different. 
Uh, what that allows the Greek speaker to do is to put uh, at the beginning of a sentence what he wants to emphasize. And that's what Paul is doing here. Verse 1, the description of the kinds of people that Jesus saves are grammatically the objects of the sentence. So instead of having the object come at the end of a sentence, Paul puts the object at the beginning of the sentence to highlight the kinds of people that Jesus saves. And the subject of the sentence comes only in uh, verse 4, where Paul says, but God. You see, first three verses, it's the object, the kinds of people that are saved. The subject of the, the person doing the work is in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. And then the, the three main verbs come in verses 5 through 6. First verb is made us alive together with Christ. The second verb raised us up with him. The third verb seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So this is Paul's point. And this is why it's so important for us to keep the individual parts in view of the whole. What Paul is saying in verses 1 through 3, he's saying some very, the kinds of things that have offended a lot of people. Because you, if you listen to what Paul says about our sinful condition, it absolutely dashes human pride. But what Paul is saying is this. You, you the dead, the enslaved, the condemned, that's who God loved and made alive together with Christ and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So do you see what Paul is doing? This is what he's saying. You, you who are dead, you who are enslaved, you who were under God's condemnation and rather you, that's who God loved. That's how God loved, by raising you with Christ, by seating you with Christ. So that's this overall structure of Paul's teaching here. And next, let's focus on what he says about our spiritual condition, that the Ephesians, they were dead in the trespasses and sins. Uh, some of these details I will expand next week. Uh, so let me just mention without explaining that Paul's pronoun changes. It goes from you to we. So what, what Paul says about the Ephesians, he means fully about himself and all of us. Okay? Apart from Christ, they, you, we, all of us, we were dead in the trespasses and sins. Now, trespass, that's one of the great words, one of the most important words of the Bible that describes our fallen condition. And trespass, it means crossing the boundary, or it means to deviate from the right path. That's what trespass means. And so we know that, don't we? We often see signs, do not trespass. Do not cross this boundary. Don't come here. Go elsewhere. That's what trespass means, to, to cross a, a boundary that you are not supposed to cross or to deviate from the right path. The word sin, 
It means to miss a mark, miss the mark, or to fall short of a standard. And so taken together, trespass and sin, it paints a picture of our spiritual condition as people who have done what is wrong. And this is a sin of commission. We have done things that God commanded us not to do. We have trespassed. We have crossed the boundaries. We have deviated. And we have sinned. We have failed to do what is right. The sin of omission. We did not do what God commanded us to do. And so the New Testament scholar John Stott puts it very eloquently like this. Before God, we are both rebels and failures. As a result, we are dead or alienated from the life of God. So that's what Paul means that we were dead in the trespasses and sins. We have transgressed, we have trespassed, we have crossed the boundaries. We have done what God has told us not to do. And we have sinned. We have missed the mark. We have failed to meet God's standard. We did not do what he commanded us to do. And as a result, we are both rebels and failures. And this is where we need to think about what life and death mean. I don't know if children still say this, but I remember when I was young, we used to say, when we thought somebody was acting in a particularly idiotic way, if they were acting in a really immature way, uh, we used to say, oh, get her life. Um, Do people still say that? I don't know. But that's interesting because that gets us to think about what the biblical definition of life is. Life Life is more than just simply taking up space. Life is simply more than simply existing. But life in the biblical sense, to live in the biblical sense, is to be in the presence of God and know that He smiles upon you. That's what Jesus calls life abundant. That's what it means to have life. That's what it means to live. And similarly, death Death is more than simply ceasing to exist. But death means to be at, utterly at odds against the only one who can give us true life. Death is bearing the crushing burden of our guilt and shame. Death is living our whole life in fear of judgment. And for people without Christ, There is no resting in peace. Because apart from Christ, every moment of our earthly life is actually spiritual death. And so when our heart at last stops beating, that physical death brings the full measure of spiritual death under whose shadow we have lived our whole life in fear, in trembling. And when our hearts stop beating, when our bodies die, we receive the fullness of the spiritual death and we bear God's wrath forever. 
Do you remember how God promised to Adam and Eve? He told them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, they ate, but they didn't die, did they? Well, actually they did. If life means to be in the presence of the Lord and know that he smiles upon you, what happened to Adam and Eve as a result of the the disobedience? They were expelled from the presence of the Lord. And rather than having their creator smile upon them, they lived their whole life in fear, fear of judgment, in the reality of their exclusion and rejection. We die long before our bodies die. And that's the spiritual condition of every soul, every human being apart from Jesus. The question then is, how can such people be saved? And who can save such a people? Quickly, if the answer comes to us in verses 4 through 6, but God being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. And so what Paul tells us here is that salvation is not partly God's work and partly human work. Because you see, we are without Christ. We are dead in the trespasses and sins. And because we are spiritually dead without Christ, we have no ability to contribute to our salvation. Whether it is the desire to be saved or some other contribution that we make in terms of the choices that we make for God or some good things that we do that deserves praise, all of that is the delusion of highest order. Because our spiritual condition is not that we are treading rough waters, trying to keep our head above the water. So that when somebody throws you a lifesaver, you cling to it, you grab hold of it. That's not our spiritual condition. Our spiritual condition is that you have drowned. You're at the bottom. You're not breathing. Your heart has stopped. And our spiritual condition is not that we, we've come across an avalanche of snow or, or mudslide, which desperately trying to dig our way out of it. No, our spiritual condition is that you're six feet under. You're dead. And being spiritually dead, there's nothing that you can do, not even a desire, in order to change your condition. We don't contribute anything to our salvation, not good desires, not good choices, but rather our salvation is from beginning to end God's work. It is a complete rescue. God raises those dead in the trespasses and sins as he raised Jesus from the dead. Our salvation, your salvation is God's work from beginning to end. Now, this is, uh, as you may well know, this is exactly the point that offends a lot of people. 
people who like to say, well, I am saved because I chose God. No, you were dead. There was no desire in you even to change or to choose God. And you could not do it. Your salvation was a complete rescue. And thirdly and finally, Paul helps us to think about what it means, what he means when he says, we once walked in trespasses and sins, walking in trespasses and sins. Psalm 51 is one of the most well-known psalms. It's the psalm that David wrote um, after he confessed his sins with Bathsheba. And it's a great psalm that helps us to understand the, the, the biblical idea and the doctrine of what sin is. And in Psalm 51, David uses three important words to describe his lostness and to describe his need for divine rescue. So in Psalm 51, verses 1 through 2, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So the three words that David uses to paint a comprehensive picture of of our spiritual misery are transgression, iniquity, and sin. And no surprise that Paul describes our condition without Christ as walking in transgression and sin. And what David says is that there is no recourse for transgression and sin. There's nothing that he can do to deliver himself except God's mercy and steadfast love. You know, what Paul is saying that offends so many people, he's not inventing it. He's getting it from scriptures. Can you see it? And although Paul does not use the last word, the third word, iniquity, iniquity means the inward twisting of the heart. What Paul describes in this passage is exactly that. And he describes the, the inward twistedness of our heart as being in bondage, as being enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, today, um, I can only quickly scan them and quickly mention them without much expansion. Next week, we will look at these things in more detail. But notice the three ways that Paul tells us that we are enslaved. First, Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of of this world. Now, the course of this world is literally the age of this world. And when Paul says the age of this world, Paul's not saying this world is so many thousands or tens of thousands. It's not age in that sense. What Paul means by the age of this world 
is in direct uh, contrast to verse 7 when he says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. So what Paul means by uh, the course of this world or the age of this world, it means that we, without Christ, we follow the, the values and the ethics of a society that has rejected God's values and God's ethics. We are in bondage to this age, this age of this world, which stands in a contrast to the coming ages where Christ reigns. This age that is passing away, this age that is lost, this age that, that enslaves mankind. Second, Paul says that we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sins of disobedience. Uh, you know, there is a great reluctance today, uh, even for some professing Christians, and, and kind of an embarrassment about the whole idea of Satan, uh, the devil. Uh, scripture does not give us that option because Scripture makes it clearly that there is the evil one, Satan, the devil, who hold us in bondage, making us the sons of disobedience, making us exercising tyranny over us that we live our entire lives in disobedience to God. Thirdly, Paul says that we were once uh, living, uh, following the prince of the air among the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Uh, when Paul talks about flesh, he doesn't mean this, you know, the part of you that covers your skeleton. Uh, he means the twisting of the heart that corrupts both what we do with our body and what we do with our mind. So Paul describes our spiritual condition as being enslaved to these three things, the world, the devil, and the flesh. There is no free will apart from Jesus because the only will, the only ability, only capacity of your heart and mind apart from Jesus is to be disobedient, to be enslaved to sin. And that's bondage. Now, do you see why this passage upsets some people? Do you see why, as I said, this is not a cheerful passage? Our spiritual condition is beyond terrible, isn't it, without Jesus? So Paul's point is this, that our spiritual condition apart from Christ is beyond terrible. We simply lack both the desire and the ability to be different. But this is where Christ 
is exceedingly beautiful. And do you see how Jesus is absolutely and uniquely qualified to save such people because Jesus gives life to the dead. Jesus gives freedom to the captives. And Jesus gives forgiveness to those who are condemned. Jesus is in every way uniquely and perfectly suited to save you and me. So no, this is not a cheerful passage, but it is a source of great joy. Let me put it to you this way. Do you think that your sins are so great that Jesus cannot love you? Well, you are actually far worse than you know. You think your sins are bad? You think you're bad? You're worse than you think. Yet it is you. You, far worse than you ever thought possible. It is you that Jesus loves. And even now, you think, and you are afraid, aren't you? That you have sinned and sinned much and often. That Jesus must be so tired, reluctant, and unhappy with you. For let me say this to you, even now, you are worse than you know. But it is you that Jesus loves. And you see, this is the joy that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I, we were far worse, in a far worse shape than we ever thought possible. But Jesus loved you and gave himself for you. And even today, you know, I think we alternate, don't we? On the one hand, patting ourselves on the back, saying, you're doing great. And on the other hand, feeling miserable and worthless. Well, even today, you're far worse than you think you are. But Jesus loves you. And that's the only thing that matters, isn't it? Jesus loves you. Amen. Now let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for instructing us this morning. Thank you for showing us our desperate condition without your grace and without your mercy. How when we were both helpless and unwilling to know you and love you, you have rescued us, you have saved us, so that we may have life and have it abundantly. So Father, Son, and Spirit, I pray that your Spirit would so minister to each and every one of us here that we would indeed experience that abundant life in Jesus Christ in the full assurance of our forgiveness of our sins and to know that though we stumble, 
Though we are weak, your love for us never changes. That if we are worse than we ever thought possible, your grace is also greater than we can ever possibly ever hope or imagine. Thank you, Jesus. And in your precious name we pray. Amen.